This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You know, I somehow I missed this, but you know, December now. Did you know they identified the little boy in the suitcase? Do you know what case I'm talking about when I say that? Uh, the little boy in the suitcase. No, I don't think I do. Not so the boy in the box, right? There was a little boy found in uh, in Indiana. A, a small child. It was like. It was, I think it was early in 2022 when they, they found him. I don't know. Oh, like maybe April. Oh, is so he was found in Indiana, but he was from like Georgia, right? Yeah, yeah. Did you know do you know about all this? Just a little bit. So they identified the little boy as Cairo Amara Jordan out of Atlanta, Georgia. And then they ended up arresting a woman in San Francisco named Dawn Elaine Coleman. Uh, she's from Louisiana, and then they had also identified his mom as uh, uh, Dijon Anderson, and she's from Georgia, was thought to be in Los Angeles. But uh, so they issued like warrants for neglect of a dependent and obstruction of justice on both of them in October uh, on October fourteenth, and then they ended up issuing a murder warrant for Dijon Anderson October twenty fifth. But I don't know that they ever found him. They like she was one of these people that she traveled around quite a bit, according to like what I had heard there. Um, they had her possibly being in California, Texas, Nevada, uh, and like in California, it was like she might be in Los Angeles, she might be in San Diego, she might be in San Francisco. I just thought that was sort of an interesting wrap up, I guess. But uh, I guess it's not really a wrap up yet. And I had um, I I realized I hadn't mentioned it at any point on the podcast, so I thought oh, I should probably do that. It was like a really sad case because not too uh, not too much before the suitcase with the child and it was found. She had been, I think, I think it was the mom had been arrested for child endangerment. Yeah, that was the one out in Nevada, right? I think. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Like North they were South from Carolina. California. 
They're in oh, South okay. Carolina on March the twelfth, twenty twenty-two. Okay. Uh, she was she was she was arrested. She was going ninety miles per hour in a sixty mile per hour zone. Oh um, yes. Then she led police on a thirty mile chase before she ran out of gas. And yeah. inside the vehicle um, was Coleman, who she said was her sister, and uh, Cairo Jordan, who was the little boy who was later found. Um, so that's unfortunate and sad, and um, it makes me wonder like couldn't something more have been done now you know going that fast in a vehicle yeah. is something but and you know they did charge her with it but uh and when was he found april april of 2022 so it wasn't too long uh just a little bit over a month i guess but um i think that uh you know there's going to be a lot to that story, probably. I feel really sad for the little boy, though. Um, he didn't seem to have anybody looking out for him. No, he did not. The people that he should have been able to trust were not trustworthy. So I do, <laughs> I have another fugitive case. This is the only one I have, I think, that's sort of tied to this time of year. My understanding is this is also in our pile of unsolved mysteries to watch. I don't know that for sure, um, but I did see there was a write-up on unsolved mysteries, and I pulled some of like what we're going to be talking about from there. This is it's, it's a this is a long one. Like he's been gone longer than I've been alive. From what I can tell, he's been missing for forty nine years. It's a pretty insane case, honestly. Yes. Uh, the way that it goes. Yeah. So had you ever heard of him before we like put him on the list for these episodes? I'm pretty sure I had. Yeah. I, Some, I think so. Something stood out um, somewhere along the way when we started researching it. I saw an old mugshot of him and I was like, I've seen that before. Um, it's, it, it's an interesting one uh, just purely from the perspective of how long it's gone on. And there is information available about him out there that you can read about. Who we're talking about today in our Fugitives of Christmas is Lester Edward Eubanks. He has aliases, including Lester William Eubanks, so he didn't stray too far there. Pete Eubanks. And I think the, the most recent one that like was disclosed was Victor Young, maybe. Lester Eubanks, he comes to us by a way of also being a, a U.S. Marshal Service. I think he's top 15, maybe. Does that sound right? Top, like I don't know. Uh, he should be. <laughs> he should be up there. Uh, he committed a violent crime. So Yeah. So there were, I know that the most featured him on the Have You Seen This Man podcast. And... I know that he was featured on America's Most Wanted. Um, he's been on Unsolved Mysteries at least once, maybe twice. It's an interesting story. I'd, I guess where we have to start with him is, is sort of uh, what, what he's wanted for. He's wanted for escape, but he had been serving a life sentence for the murder of 14-year-old Mary Ellen Diener, who was... Uh, a little girl in Mansfield, Ohio. 
Now, on one of these episodes of, I, th- I think it may be America's Most Wanted and Unsolved Mysteries, they talked to Mary Ellen's sister, a woman named Myrtle Carter. Uh, she recalls like loving Mansfield growing up and felt like it was a really uh, safe place. She said that uh, Mary Ellen was just a typical little girl doing all the activities you could think of, like young girls and, and that time doing, you know, riding bikes and roller skating, playing with dolls. Uh, she was described as bright, giving, and a good student. Um, she was a member of the Glee Club, and she was on the school's newspaper staff. She was not a troublemaker, and she helped to take care of her younger siblings, and she was very social and had a lot of friends. On the night of Saturday, September 13th, 1965, Mary Ellen and her 12-year-old sister, Brenda, uh, they were in charge of doing the laundry in the house. And they had washed all the clothes, but there's no way to dry them at home because the dryer was broken. So they had to put all the clothes in a basket and get into a taxi and go down to the half-hour laundromat on Spring Mill Street in Mansfield. Their mother is a woman named Cassie Diener Jones. And she let them go to this particular location later at night than, than most parents would let their kids out. But the reason she did that is because their grandmother, a woman named Love Williams, lived right next door to this to the half-hour laundry mat. So they had a place to go if they had any, any kind of problems. They arrive at the laundry mat around 10.30 p.m. And they start putting clothes in one of the dryers. But they realize that they don't quite have enough change to run all the machines. Mary Ellen tells Brenda that she's going to go over to her grandma's house to get the change. Brenda asked to come along, but Mary Ellen tells her to stay and watch their stuff. So a few minutes later, Mary Ellen comes back and says that love did not have any change and that she had also gone to a nearby gas station, but they didn't have any either. So she asked Brenda to go and see if this other laundromat on North Mulberry street was open. Brenda is afraid of the dark, but she says she's going to go. And she goes to the corner and she can see that the other laundromat's lights are on. So then she walks back to tell her sister. She sees a man standing on the corner and he's wearing clothes that are the same color as like an army uniform. Like green army clothes is what she calls them. She said he had a weird look on his face. She goes back to the first laundromat and she tells Mary Ellen that that other one on Mulberry Street is open. So... Mary Ellen leaves Brenda watching their stuff here next door to their grandma's house. And she goes to the other laundromat, which is about five minutes away, and she's going to get change. But Mary Ellen never comes back. So Brenda goes over to her grandmother's house and she tells her that Mary Ellen had gone to get change but never came back. So grandma says for Brenda to stay at her house. And she's going to go look for Mary Ellen. At 12.45 a.m., a person living near the North Mulberry Street laundromat calls police and reports that there's someone laying on a sidewalk behind a vacant house on Mulberry Street. So officers respond and they find a young girl and she's dead. At that same moment, Love Williams had started walking over to the second laundromat. And as she turned the corner, she saw the police cars arriving. She told the police that her granddaughter was missing. 
And they ask her to come over and look at the body of the girl. And it turns out that it's Mary Ellen. She's been shot to death and her skirt has been pulled up and it appears that someone was trying to take her clothes off. Next to her, they find a handful of coins. So that morning, the detectives and police, they go to Mary Ellen's home and they let everyone know that she's been murdered. Now, at the time, the sister who talks throughout you know, the years about uh, Mary Ellen Myrtle is her name. She was married, but she lived nearby. And she remembers that Cassie was hysterical. And for years after this, Cassie uh, was played by guilt. Brenda was in shock for a long time. And it, it affected her greatly because they were very close in age. And it took many years in counseling for her to, to sort of come to terms with what had happened. And Myrtle says that she cannot imagine being in, in Brenda's shoes. Um, she was much older than, than the two girls. Shortly after the murder, the police were able to determine what caliber of gun had been used. And they went to all of the local stores that would sell that type of gun in Mansfield. And while they're at a place called Diamond Hardware, they asked to see their purchase records. And in the purchase records, they noticed a weapon that fit the description of the one they thought was used to kill Mary Ellen. It had been purchased less than a month earlier by a 22-year-old man named Lester Eubanks, who was a former Air Force medic. Police started looking for Lester, and they got information that Eubanks had been in the area of the crime on the night of the murder. So some of the family, including Myrtle, knew that Eubanks lived on the street. They didn't know him well, but they knew that he lived there. And he sort of had a reputation among the people that knew him as being a little weird. Uh, Myrtle specifically described him as appearing to be a loner. She said he was always carrying nunchucks with him, and he would walk up and down the street flipping them around. Now, Eubanks, he grew up in Mansfield. He was described as a good-looking guy. He was well-liked, and he could fit in pretty much anywhere. But he was also considered to have been a sexual predator. Twice in his past, uh, before, you know, before this time, he had been accused of sex offenses or sex crimes. In 1959, when he was 16 years old, he had assaulted a 12-year-old girl, but she had escaped so he ends up getting sentenced to probation. And during this whole to-do with assaulting the 12-year-old girl, he admitted that he had grabbed another girl after a high school dance. But when she screamed, he let her go. So at the, at the time of Mary Ellen's murder, Eubanks was out on bond for a charge of attempted rape. He had only been out of jail for about two weeks before the crime happened. This other crime had taken place on August the 19th in a restaurant that was across the street from the Mulberry Street laundromat. The victim there was an 18-year-old waitress who had been working alone at the time. She said that Eubanks had grabbed her by the throat, pushed her into the bathroom and threatened to kill her, and then choked her until she passed out. A police captain from that time says that Eubanks should never have been out of jail on bond because of the seriousness of his prior offenses and the 
likelihood that he would reoffend. So Eubanks lived in an apartment close to both of the laundromats. And when police searched his apartment, they found a paper bag with shell casings and bullets. They also found a 32 caliber Ivor Johnson revolver. And the bullets from Mary Ellen's body matched the spent shell casings and the bullets from his apartment. His footprints were also found near the scene of where her body was discovered. At around 5.45 p.m. on Sunday afternoon, officers found Eubanks walking home from church. They picked him up and they took him down to the police station and they interviewed him. And at first, he denied having anything to do with Mary Ellen's murder. And he tried to tell the police who were interviewing him that his gun had been stolen. But when he was confronted with further evidence, according to the police, he confessed. The confession was pretty detailed, and the police felt like they had the right person. In the confession, he describes that on the night of the murder, he had gone to a nightclub with a, a local sex worker. And while he was on the dance floor, he dropped his gun. A couple of people that knew Lester had seen this happen. And shortly afterwards, the sex worker that he was there with on a date left him and she went to do some business. She went to make a transaction. Before she left, he told her that he would check on her in an hour or so. Now, this woman lived across the street from the Mulberry, the North Mulberry Street laundromat. Lester walks back and he is basically, you know, kind of walking around waiting to hear from this woman that she's okay. And around 11 p.m., he was still there at her house sort of skulking about. And he saw Mary Ellen leave the first laundromat, uh, walk to the second one, and then he saw her walking back by. He said he tried to talk to her, but she didn't want anything to do with him. And he said he wasn't sure what happened, but she raised up a bottle of soda that she was drinking. And his claim was that he thought she might hit him with it. People do this a lot where the, the confessions get a little self-serving and they, um, they minimize the behavior of an assailant. He says that he blocked her movement with his hands and then he grabbed her and he dragged her about 150 feet, which would have put her right behind uh, the vacant house. He said he attempted to rape her, but she started to scream. So he covered her mouth with his hands uh, while she was screaming. And then he changed his mind about the rape. And instead he shot her twice and he left her for dead. According to his confession, he leaves there and he goes around uh, the corner to where he lives between the two laundry mats he puts the bullets and the, the spent shells into a paper bag, uh, which is where it was found later by the police. He cleans himself up and he basically like is trying to calm down after having killed this young girl. So he gets dressed and he decides that he's going to go downtown and he's going to try and find an open club. But about 45 minutes later, after he had attacked Mary Ellen, he comes back to the crime scene. And he says that she was laying there, still alive, and she was writhing in pain. 
She was trying to call out for help. And once he realized that she was still alive, he picked up a paving brick that was in the alley and he struck her in the head several times. And once again, he left her to die. After that, he goes over and he picks up the woman that was having a transaction as a sex worker and the two of them go downtown. So later on, he's asked, why did he kill Mary Ellen? He says he didn't intend to kill her. He didn't have any intentions to do anything with her. Um, He ends up charged with first-degree murder and attempted rape, and he pleads not guilty by reason of insanity. So in May of 1966, he goes on trial at the Richland County Courthouse. Mary Ellen's family, some of them are attending daily to sort of show support for Mary Ellen. Um, And they really want Eubanks to know that uh, they've taken someone very special from them. Eubanks' attorneys try to claim that he has a mental defect that causes him to be impulsive. A psychiatrist who examined him agrees with this, saying that he has poor control over his behavior. Eubanks himself also testifies. Um, He says that after Mary Ellen was shot, he took her pulse and he discovered she was dead. When he was asked why he didn't call for help, he said that there were no phones nearby. There was a police lieutenant named Dale Fortney who believed that Eubanks testified because he was a narcissist. Um, He didn't show any remorse at all. He seemed to have some remorse or he seemed to be remorseful over the fact that he got caught. So based on Eubanks' confession in the courtroom, On May 25th, a jury convicted him of first-degree murder while attempting to commit rape. Uh, They deliberated for about 10 hours, and then he ends up sentenced to death. Uh, Mary Ellen's family said that they were happy. They felt like justice was served, and they felt like everything was over. Uh, It was that way for a little while. Uh, Eubanks goes to Columbus, to the Ohio State Penitentiary. This is a pretty interesting story for for really for what happens next. That's pretty cut and dried, don't you think? As far as like he's sentenced to death and and like really that that should be the end of it. Well, right, because I mean he essentially confessed multiple times and there doesn't seem to be except for like the not guilty for reasons of insanity, which he didn't demonstrate any of. Um any characteristics of being insane. Uh yeah, he should just be put to death. Yeah, and it happens pretty fast. So the crime is in November of 1965, and by uh, May of 1966, he's on his way to to prison. There were several inmates that appear over the years sort of telling stories about Eubanks. Uh, One of them in uh, the earliest Unsolved Mystery, a guy that they call Bill, he says he didn't want to be around Eubanks because he didn't like him. Uh, And that people knew that Eubanks was in there for a murder, but they they didn't necessarily know all of the details. Eubanks is described as like, he's a very big guy, kind of a tall guy. He's cocky. He has an attitude. Um, he is not afraid to express that he really doesn't like a lot of people. And he's not afraid to express his opinions of like things that he doesn't like. He seems to be sort of a, a loner and he spends most of his time on death row writing and painting. At, at that point in time, uh, death row prisoners were allowed to do a variety of activities um, since they're sort of uh, stuck there. And at one point he's featured in the Columbus dispatch uh, when they're doing profiles on prison artists 
and it had heralded him as the best of the death row painters. So on three separate occasions, Eubank's execution is moved back from its initial date. And then in 1972, the death penalty is abolished in the United States. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court had ruled that at that time, capital punishment was being carried out in an arbitrary and capricious manner. So as a result of this, uh, Eubanks, along with pretty much everyone on death row uh, in Ohio and the U.S., they have their sentences set aside and commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Mary Ellen's family gets pretty mad when they learn that Eubanks' sentence is commuted. But overall, they're more confused. And uh, Myrtle and one of the other uh, siblings, they describe that the family just sort of wanted to let it go. They didn't want to think about him anymore. So they're trying to get on with their lives. And, and they decided they were just going to have to be happy with the fact that he's in prison. So after the death penalty gets abolished, one of the things that happened in, in various jurisdictions, various um, states, was they, they start to basically get rid of death row. So they're not putting any money into death row guards, and they move a lot of people like Eubanks, including Eubanks, back into general population. That prisoner that they talked to, Bill, who pops up here and there, he says that Eubanks could put on a facade where it seems like he's a good dude when he's really not. And this lends to some of the other descriptions of him as a smooth talker and sort of a narcissist. Now, Eubanks gets on the good side of, of several of the guards in um, Columbus. They give him letters of recommendation. He ends up in a prison honors program. Um, he gets, you know, some status from all of this. And at the time, uh, in the this is the early 70s, there was a lot of national reform movements going on where prison administrators were trying new approaches to rehabilitate inmates to prepare them for the possibility of life on the outside. So Eubanks becomes eligible for this honor program based on his accolades that he collects from the different guards that he's winning over. So being a part of this program they have, there's a furlough aspect to the program. And a furlough is when people can leave the prison to go do other things. Sometimes it's like uh, where they're just outside the prison walls. And sometimes it's actually like doing work details that take them outside of the prison or moving between prisons. And sometimes they're allowed to go out in the presence of a guard to run errands. And there's a reward program that is put into effect where on some occasions they're allowed to attend football games and other sporting events. Some of them are even allowed to go to events like the state fair. The idea was if you reward prisoners for good behavior, then this would help the prison guards control the population and incentivize this conduct. And it would, it would make for a much calmer environment. So Eubanks ends up going to several different places because his art goes into art shows, is submitted to art shows, and he wins a couple of awards. Looking back on it, uh, the cops, several of the cops involved, they talk about it from the perspective that Eubanks should never have been allowed in any of these programs 
because of the high recidivism rate of sex offenders. But at the time, the statistics didn't necessarily make that abundantly clear. It's interesting that they point out the sex offender aspect of that as opposed to the murderer aspect of that. So I think what they're saying, uh, while I agree the murder is egregious, I think the idea is he's already had these multiple convictions for sex offenses and they knew that he was prone to reoffending. So there's no reason for them to like murder aside. There's no reason for them to be letting this guy who's a sex offender in these programs. Does that make sense? Well, it makes sense. I, I still just feel like um, murderers shouldn't have been allowed anyway, but it's fine. <laughs> No, no, I mean, I, I, I'm I, just saying, like, I don't think, like, he's definitely a murderer. And this is a 14-year-old girl he's murdered. But the bigger problem was he had already, on multiple occasions, raped people. Well, so even if you can rehabilitate him from the murder, he's already committed multiple sex offenses. you got to keep an eye on the guy that's committing sex offenses. Or the murderer. Well, I mean, neither are good. I actually feel like murdering may be worse. Now, as far as recidivism, like repeating the behavior, you know, I don't know. But I feel like you have... The reason you're in prison is because you're being punished. Right. I understand that this little... Now, you'll notice, like, those types of things don't happen now, right? Um, It was not a successful... Experiment. No, no, it was it was not a great experiment. Yeah. So eight years after Mary Ellen's murder in 1973, Eubanks, along with three other prisoners in this furlough program, they are allowed by the Ohio Department of Corrections to go on a Christmas shopping trip. So they're dressed in civilian attire, they have money for the trip, and they go to Great Southern Shopping Center in Columbus. So on December 7th, they're dropped off by guards and prison administrators at 10 a.m. They're allowed to go into the mall for four hours and buy presents for their family. They are told to report back at a specific place by 2 p.m. And rather than staying in a group, they're allowed to leave the guards and be on their own and just be wandering around in this shopping mall. I think that's a terrible idea. Don't you? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, it's it's odd to me that, like, it, I'm not sure it was supposed to go, like, this far. I feel like the guards were just, like, we don't feel like babysitting. Yeah. And I think maybe they had taken it upon themselves and trusted these, you know, um, what, uh, exemplary prisoners to, you know, come back? Well, so uh, four prisoners are dropped off, two o'clock comes, and three prisoners come back. So three of them did come back. Yep. Except Eubanks doesn't. He never arrives to meet them. He just walked away. So the guards start searching them all, and they don't find him. 
so basically they have taken a child murderer to a mall, dropped him off, no guards. Like you said, it's probably they they were like, oh, he's fine, it's gonna come back. And uh, he vanishes. So after the escape, they do change this policy. Inmates are no longer allowed to go shopping on their own. I'm not really sure, like that that shouldn't have been a given to begin with. Yeah, no, I'm 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 with you, but we are doing fugitives, so we have to have a fugitive, and Eubanks just became our fugitive. Right. Uh, I wonder if they let people that had shoplifting charges go to the mall shopping without a guard. <laughs> So the sheriff calls the family. They call Mary Ellen's family and they tell them Eubanks has escaped. And mom and sisters are pretty pissed off. And the sheriff is trying to explain to them what the Department of Corrections was doing. And none of them understand how a prisoner is allowed to go Christmas shopping. Yeah, it wasn't a good idea. Uh, so to say the least, the family gets re-traumatized by this whole ordeal. And nobody knows what happens to Eubanks at the mall. It, there's some argument of was it planned or did he just walk away? Uh, officials believe that he possibly planned the escape and had some kind of arrangement made in advance. So they start going through Eubanks visitation list and they realized that he started out having visitors roughly once a month but then he would start to see certain people every week now it was theorized that somebody from the eubanks family supported him and helped him get out of there and a couple of the people that talk about this case over the years say there's no way this could have been pulled off without some kind of outside assistance. Now, they they talk to all the family and all the friends and all the people on the visitation list, and none of them ever give up any information about Eubanks' whereabouts. So I just want to make sure that I have this straight. They don't feel like like unguarded prisoner who's facing the rest of his life in prison having been let loose at a mall to do his Christmas shopping without supervision could have possibly walked away unless somebody else had assisted. I don't like, I never have seen evidence that like someone else helped him. Well, like, I don't even see why they're saying that like it had, I mean, he walked away. Nobody was watching. I mean, I guess that was just to save a little bit of face maybe. But the reason he left was because some they let him leave. Oh, no. they These guys gave him the best Christmas gift they possibly could have. And that is they gave him an opportunity. Like, I don't, I don't, like, I don't know. Like, I understand they, like, and there's different cops that talk about this that are directly connected to it and some that are just loosely tangentially connected to it. The bottom line is like they want to absolve themselves over some of the failure of this brilliant idea that everyone had. And you know, it's not the, it's not the cops and the, and the deputies and the guards that are involved. It's not necessarily their problem because it comes from above. Um, this is an administrative I, effort that's going on here in the department of corrections. 
True. Um, I do, however, find it very unlikely that this particular like unguarded shopping activity was sanctioned the way it played out. No. And I think, so this is one of those situations and I've looked at that too, cause I agree with you there. It's one of those situations that like when I sort of drill down on it and how it all happened, um, I think they got themselves in like the more you listen to them talk. And I think they talk on two different unsolved mysteries and an America's most wanted. The more you listen to people talk about this in interviews, the more you get the impression that like, this was like the worst perfect storm that they created. And you can hear them trying to say it has to be premeditated because nobody really wants to admit like we were just being lazy. Well, and you know, <laughs> I, I mean, feel, I wouldn't I want to walk around that. with a prisoner while they shopped either. Okay. Well, then don't be a guard. Right. That's what I'm saying. Um, so I don't feel like it had to have been premeditated. I actually, I don't know what else was going on leading up to that. I'm not even certain he would have known he was going to have the opportunity. Um it seems to me like he was just like, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Oh, they're going to catch him and take him back. That's all. And then he won't get to go Christmas shopping again. However, that's not what happened. No. So this guy, and I will say, like, there's definitely some lead up to this where he gets into this furlough program to begin with. I don't think that ever should have been a thing, but that comes from, you know, him just, trying to better his situation where he does, he wants some freedom in there. And like, he plays up his, you know, mask of whatever it is, as a good guy. I do understand why, uh, you know, the, the correctional officers involved would want to make it seem like he manipulated the system, but I don't know how much of that was really happening. It seems like he was just playing into what they were putting out there. Yeah, no, he was just looking for an opportunity. He he really was just trying to make it easier on himself. And that, like, he put forth a little more effort than the guards did so that he could put forth a lot less effort in the future. But I will say that you drop a guy off at 10 a.m. He doesn't show up at 2. I don't think you sound the alarm till 2.15, 2.30. You've given this guy four and a half hours head start there's nothing that can be done about that. He maybe spent 20 minutes wondering if they were like watching him or could see him or something. And then he bolted. So he's gone by the time they're even looking for him. They do play this off. Just like you said, like I said, over the years, they say that he manipulated things, but the truth is they just gave him an out and he took it. So after this happens, the Franklin County Sheriff's office puts a warrant for him into NCIC or the version of NCIC that would have existed at the time. And they, they basically put out a, a, like a warrant. The FBI picks the warrant up and they turn it federal and it's a nationwide pickup, meaning anywhere he is caught, he can be arrested and brought back to Ohio. Um, at one point Interpol gets involved and there's a pretty extensive manhunt that they describe. I don't know how much of a manhunt you can do. This guy literally walked away from a mall full of people. And for 20 years, from 1973 until 1993, nobody knows what happened to Lester Eubanks. One of the uh, like police that's involved early on 
in December of 1993, uh, a guy named Captain Arcudi, he decides to look into the case a little bit. And he wonders if it's possible that Eubanks has been caught somewhere, but like some kind of glitch in the, the system has made it where they just don't know it. So he goes searching the records of um, NCIC or the National Crime Information Center, and he's just looking for Eubanks' warrant information. Guess what he finds? Nothing. The, the warrant for Eubanks is no longer in the system. And the federal warrant had been removed. There's so, no telling how long it hadn't been there. Yeah, they can't. Like the I I looked at this, and I'm not a hundred percent sure how this would work. But I looked up how NCIC would like play out. Now, technically, NCIC has been around since 1967. But at different times in history, it has held different pieces of information. So my theory is during some kind of upgrade, they just, they booted it. And this is sort of backed up by the idea that the current NCIC 2000 system is marked for upgrade in 1992. So his warrant may not have been gone as long as they think it was gone but i did see that the government accountability office in 1993 concluded that the fbi had spent a billion dollars and would need to spend an additional two billion dollars to update the computer system so that means they were working on it right before this guy's checking but he goes looking and there is no warrant so what this means is if lester eubanks was ever stopped for something minor or talk to you for something minor and the police officer go to run his name. He's not a wanted person, even though there's posters of him around, he's not in there. Captain Arcudi fixes this. And then he contacts America's most wanted. So on September 10th, 1994, America's most wanted runs a segment about Lester Eubanks. And on the night of the airing, a tipster comes forward and says that someone picked up Eubanks from the mall on the day of his escape and drove him to Michigan. Then a call comes in from a woman who says she knew Lester Eubanks and that she used to run around with him in Los Angeles in the 70s. She also said that he ended up living with Kay Banks. So Kay Banks is the widow of his cousin, Daryl Banks. Daryl Banks is actually famous. Do you, do you know about him? Yeah. Okay, so Daryl Banks was born in Mansfield. He grew up in Buffalo, got his start as a soul singer singing in gospel churches. Now, he passed away in February of 1970 when he was 32 years old. But the way that he passed away was, was not great. He was um, murdered, right? Yeah, so he, he had just signed to Stax Records. They released one of his albums. They were re-upping his recordings. And in February of 1970... Uh, Banks was shot and killed by a policeman named Aaron Bullock in Detroit, Michigan, after Banks intervened uh, in his affair with Banks' girlfriend, Marjorie Bozeman. So basically, there's a little love triangle for a minute, and it the, the end result is he gets shot. And that's it. Like that, That's his whole story. So his widow, Kay Banks is someone that 
Lester Eubanks apparently hooked up with. So on October 28, 1994, detectives in Los Angeles go to Kay's home and they meet with her. So she agrees to cooperate because they scare her into thinking that she's going to be charged with harboring a fugitive. She says that he did live with her um, and that he's no longer living with her. She said that uh, she was originally from Ohio and that they had met there. Uh, she says that she was originally from Ohio and that's where she had met Daryl. After his death, she moved to Los Angeles and she started writing with Eubanks while he was in prison. She just wanted someone to talk to and she basically became his pen pal. There's a photo that they have used in all of this of Eubanks in his jail cell taken by a guard that shows a picture of Kay Banks on his wall. And she says that he walked away from the mall in Ohio, made his, made his way to Detroit, Michigan. He stayed there for a few weeks to see if he was going to be chased or not. Um, he was trying to figure out how hard it was they were looking for him. So he lived in a little small town there, painted houses. And about three weeks after his escape, someone gave him enough money to take a Greyhound bus from Michigan to California. So the bus arrives in California and gets pulled over by law enforcement. And Eubanks thinks they're coming for him. But it turns out they were looking for illegal fruit being brought across state lines. Eubanks shows up at Kay's home. And she's shocked that he's there. And she told detectives that she did not know about his plans to escape. He assumes the name Victor Young. And he got a hunting license under that name which he used as his ID. And the reason is because he didn't have to give fingerprints for a hunting license. So, you know, Eubanks is smart and, and they acknowledge this in America's Most Wanted and they acknowledge that he's staying off the police radar. He kept painting while he was there and Kay said that he loved to paint, but that he was also a bully. And she said, in all honesty, she was pretty intimidated by him. She dealt with him for a while and she tried to think of a way to get him out of her life. So one day in 1975, she told him that she got a call from the FBI and that they were asking about him. Um, she said that was all it took to get him away from her. He left that day and she never saw him again. But before leaving, she told her that he was going to head north. So Kay told detectives about Quality Quilters Mattress Factory in Gardenia, California. That was where Eubanks had been working in the manufacturing department. They go to this location and they check on it. And the former owner, Joy Springer, said that Eubanks had worked there until either 1985 or 1986. She said that he worked hard, he kept quiet, and he rode a 10-speed bicycle to work. When it rained, she would sometimes offer to give him a ride uh, to his Gardenia apartment, which was right across the street from a golf course. She said she remembered that he always wore a heavy amount of cologne. And she said it was overwhelming and would give her headaches. She also said that he would always hide from photographs during work events. After that, it's believed that Eubanks lived in Northern California for some time. There's an LAPD detective named Tim Connor who worked the case for about two years. He and his team suspected that Eubanks was using art as some kind of possible source of income. And in 1996, they ended their investigation because they simply ran out of leads. In 2003, a man named Lieutenant Michael Vinson 
of the Ohio State Highway Patrol was asked by a superior officer to look into the case. He had never heard of it, and he decided to look into Eubanks' father, Mose Eubanks. Mose was a minister, and he was the only known relative of Eubanks that was still living in Mansfield at the time. So Vincent went out to talk to Mose, and Mose basically told him he would talk about everything except Lester. Um, he spent time working with prisoners, helping them turn their lives around. And he said that there's nothing that can be done to bring that girl back. Vincent asked him, do you think justice was done in this case with your son? And he responded, people change and they go on and start new lives. I pray for Lester every day. And that's all I'm going to say about him. They were left with the impression that Mose knew where Eubanks was. So sometime later, a detective in Mansfield talks to an informant who said that the same summer she had been at Moses' house. And while she was there, the phone rang and Moses excused himself. And when he returned, he told her that he was on the phone with his son in Alabama who was taking a break from painting a house. So at this point, Lieutenant Vincent had tracked down all of Eubanks' siblings and none of them were in Alabama. So he gets a subpoena to Moses' phone records and he discovered that several calls in that time frame were coming in and going out to a center for troubled youth. So a man working at the center at the time matched Eubanks description, but the man didn't have a driver's license and he didn't drive and his social security number turned out to be fake. So in the mind of the uh, Ohio state patrol, they believe that this man is Lester Eubanks. The man skates not long after this, these conversations take place. So in 2015, the U.S. Marshals create a cold case unit. And a deputy there, a deputy marshal named Deputy Seiler, takes over the Eubanks case. He learned from a source that Eubanks had been in Mansfield in 2003 and in 2010. And in 2012, Mose died, and reportedly Eubanks, Lester Eubanks, returned to Mansfield for his funeral. An associate of Eubanks tells one of the deputies that you'll never catch him, which leads this deputy to believe that the associate knows where Eubanks is and that he's still alive. His siblings refuse to cooperate with the new investigation, which has led to speculation that they all know his whereabouts as well. Um, they believe that Eubanks is married and that he has children who have no idea that he's a fugitive. And in July of 2018, the work began to get Eubanks added to the U.S. Marshal's 15 most wanted list. And on December 7th, the 45th anniversary of his, his, his escape, he was officially added to the list. Now, Deputy Siler says that the people on the list are the worst of the worst, and he hopes that someone will recognize Eubanks and lead to his capture. In 2019, a man who is believed to be Eubanks' biological son agrees to give his DNA to the U.S. Marshals. He thinks that his late mother was raped by Lester Eubanks. So they want to compare it to samples taken from uh, unsolved crimes around the country in hopes that it will offer hints to his new identity or location. However, the FBI's policy in 2019 prohibit searches of their database using a relative's DNA profile. So what do you think of this? Do you think this guy's ever going to be caught? 
I hope so. Um, I, I think if in 2012, I think you said when his dad died, if somebody had been on it, uh, they could have caught him then. Uh, any remaining family members, his siblings, like if they could pay attention to that, they could probably catch him. Yeah. If they checked out, you know, I don't know how many siblings he had, but they looked on social media at his siblings or perhaps his siblings' uh, children. I don't know how old this guy is. How old is he? So Lester Eubanks. The crime was in 1965. And 22 was, and 65. Okay. So he would have been born in 33. Ish. That's 67 plus. He's old, man. If he's still alive, he's old. Wait, is that right? 1965. How old was he in 1965? Says he was 22 years old. 1943. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Okay. He would be 79. Okay, so perhaps his siblings' children, right? Yeah, social media of his siblings' children, maybe grandchildren. I bet he's out there uh, just randomly. I mean, maybe. Like, like, well, I now, I don't know why. I feel like this case, if any case ever warranted it, they should have levied a obstruction charge against uh, Moe's. I feel like that would have. That probably would have helped, yeah. And then, like, for them to have not been, you know, the, the, they're treating this guy like it's a shoplifter that walked away. This guy is a murderer, right? Yeah. And And he escaped justice because of, like, just some really stupid stuff happening. And I, it's so insulting to this 14-year-old little girl that he killed. And her family. And to me, um, I don't feel like everything that could be done is being done. Um, I feel like there is a lot more that they could do. And especially with a whole cold case unit, like, I mean, what case could be more important than this one? I don't, I don't have any answers on that. I think that this is an important case. There were some, a little more information that came out uh, that wasn't part of the America's Most Wanted page or the Unsolved Mysteries page. And I know we're kind of covering this in a generic fashion, but uh, I do want to point out that the first season of Have You Seen This Man focuses on him. In October 2020, the marshals bumped up their reward from 25000 to 50000 That's the largest reward that the U.S. Marshal Service had ever offered. Um, as a result of America's Most Wanted and In Pursuit with John Walsh, hundreds of tips came out. Um, these tips believe these tips lead the marshals to believe he's still alive. In March of 2021, the marshals did release several newly unearthed photographs of people who worked with Eubanks in the mid 70s. Now, these photographs were discovered as a result of the publicity surrounding the "Have You Seen This Man?" podcast. They're hoping to locate and identify some of these people in the hopes that. Um, they could tell them more about Eubanks. One of those people that's photographed may have been Eubanks' girlfriend at the time, um, who's a woman that they call, quote, Renee, who may also have gone by the name Sherm, S-H-E-R. Uh, there's another worker in there named Rick. 
Uh, they want to talk to any of these people because they believe that at the time Eubanks was living in North Hollywood, the Gardena area, South uh, Los Angeles and Long Beach. Um, and honestly, he may have never left the greater Los Angeles area, but their thinking was somewhere in there. If he's married with kids, he met his, the person who would be his wife. And if they can find her, um, and, and they're still together, then they can find him. Right. Which, I mean, ah, this is, uh, this is it's, a little frustrating. <laughs> it's, it, it's a wild case, isn't it? Um. Yeah. It. It. It is. I feel like it. Like you were saying, it was like this perfect storm of just, you know, mishaps. I don't think that uh, there is any malfeasance on the part of any of the law enforcement uh, and correctional officers that have like kind of been in play all this time. I don't feel like any of them were like, let's let this murderer go. It's just like kind of this overwhelming incompetence. And then yeah. like not understanding that, you know, you can't let a murderer or a sex offender or a rapist go wander around in the mall by themselves. I mean, I, I feel like that's common sense, but maybe th he's one of the reasons it is common sense now, <laughs> you know? Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, it's examples like this. I mean, that's one of the reasons I was covering these fugitive cases is so, you know, some of these people have died or whatever. I've wondered over the years, um, like, how many unidentified people are actually fugitives. And, and, like, you know, it's not something you could, like, statistic out. But in cases like this, this guy is literally one of the reasons that a lot of things changed about how inmates are treated. Because he took advantage of it. If it wasn't him, it was going to be someone else. But Well, it was a bad idea. Um, yeah, it was a terrible I, idea. I, I do think he probably... I don't feel like this guy continued killing. Um, mm, I, 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 I could see him being a rapist. That's the well, reason I think it's like important. To, but he could have changed, but like I don't want to... Well, and like the the way that he, like his father, um, I would have had a really hard time having a conversation with him because, yeah, sure, people can change. Um, he was fortunate enough to not be put to death, but he's got to live the rest of his life in prison. And the way his dad was sort of smirky about it, um, yeah. you know, there was a fourteen year old girl that died. Well, I mean, so dad seems to be res resigned to the fact that nothing's going to bring her back. Well, that's fine, but he, that doesn't give him the, he, they should have slapped him with an obstruction charge. I don't know why they didn't. He was clearly, it, it's possible they, I mean, they could have proved he was obstructing, right? Um, just because of the way that, Actually, they wouldn't even have to prove it. I bet uh, getting his dad put in, you know, just holding probably would have been enough for somebody to say something. Because yeah, they're, they're willing to go so far, but only so far. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is not the kind of guy I'm ever going to be able to, um, to defend in any capacity, like any of them. Like, uh, if the siblings know, like, at some point, somebody should have just given him up for the money, as far as I'm concerned. It's going to be really hard for one of the siblings to come forward at this point, though, because, like, you know they've known all along. 
Yeah, they're kind of stuck. And so it really takes uh, somebody paying attention. And clearly he's, you know, he'll have a different name and uh, he's got a whole different family life. And I think that that can really, um, it can misguide people that may have come in contact. Because you know this guy's come into contact with other people, right? He has to have, yeah. And it's just a matter of, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what exactly is going on. And unfortunately, so he's 79 years old now. Um, he'll be 80 next year. So, you know, it's, it's, I, I would say that it, there's probably just as much of a chance as him finally getting caught as there is for him just dying of old age. My guess is he's probably dead. Um, I would, mm, I would have to look up like Mose Eubanks to get a better idea. He died in twelve, right? Yeah, he died in two thousand twelve. He was eighty nine though, so he. Well, he could have a while then, I guess. Um, yeah. It never says anything about um, his mom. That that thing about not using family members' DNA that was pretty interesting. Yeah, I thought that. I thought you would. Um, I thought you would feel that was weird. Well, I know that. Well, I actually don't think they should use uh, family members' DNA, and when they're cross-referencing it with uh, evidence left from crimes, that's uh, that would be violating the Fourth Amendment. However, um, you know, it's there's nothing to say that like his biological son wasn't a suspect in something. Right. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just you. saying, um, but, uh, I do think it, I don't actually think that that would yield what maybe they were hoping it would yield. Um, I, I don't think this guy is going to have left a lot of DNA behind at crimes. Um, he, uh, you know, he, he either changed or, uh, it, it seems like they would have, if there was something to explore DNA-wise, they would have figured out a way to do it. Um, now, that's another thing that they should take into consideration doing, though. Um, the biological son should upload his DNA to, you know, Ancestry or whatever, one of the commercial sites, because, um, you know, a sibling, a half-sibling match would show up, Um I feel like the very first thing that would happen if a, you know, father, grandfather, uncle, whatever, if he was like, you absolutely can't upload your DNA, right? Um, that would raise some flags, right? Oh, yeah. And so um, I bet somebody has done it. Like, literally somebody related to every single person on the planet has uploaded their DNA. Yeah, um, you would think that the FBI could say... Well, if they're not running it against their own database, that's so weird to me that they do that. What do you mean? Well, that they don't run relatives, like they don't like, do familial matches, at least as of 2019, they weren't. Well, they can't. I mean, it would be, it's not, uh, they have to have probable cause to uh, believe the person has committed some sort of crime. And it's got to be a crime that they, that it's acceptable that they have their DNA and that it's put through CODIS, right? Yeah. 
Um, and you're right, family members, uh, that doesn't, that opens up too many doors. It's not reasonable. However, that's not going to stop, uh, any person like this biological son from putting it out there in like ancestry. And my point is like, this would be like the opposite of building the tree backwards, right? It's going forwards and you're looking for people who are, as far as descendant wise, they come after you, right? Because yeah. you're looking for siblings that would have been born after you because you're looking to find uh, the father or the grandfather at this point, I guess. Yeah. Um, I feel like somebody's probably put something out there. Well, I mean, I hope they find him. Other, you know, it, it's kind of weird at this point. Like, even if they find him, he's sort of already lived 45 years. Right, and that's 45 years that um, his victim didn't live, right? Yeah. She was killed in a very terrible, terrible way while she was trying to get her chores done, right? Mary Ellen didn't deserve that. And I, I'm sure he's probably sorry, especially if he's had children and, you know, run the gamut of life. Uh, he probably has a lot of regret, but not enough, because if he really had regret, he would turn himself back in. That's not going to happen. I mean, I I can't necessarily, I don't know that I would have ever, well, I would never would have killed somebody, but I certainly would have been probably too timid to try and escape, right? Yeah. Um. He clearly wasn't. It sounds like, you know, based on his cousin's widow that he was with briefly, it seems like, you know, he was still a bully even after he'd gotten out of prison. So, or not yeah, she wasn't out. very kind about him. Right. Well, and I mean, I get where she was probably, you know, covering her own tuchus, but at the same time, you know, I don't know. It just seems like a really, it, it didn't give a good impression. Like this was a guy that was going to change his life. Right. Yeah. One more fugitive down. I don't know how many more we have to go. We got a couple left. Thank you for joining us. We are sponsored by LabratiCreations.com. You can check them out at LabratiCreations.com and you can still use the code CRIMEXS for a fun pop pet portrait of your own pet. You can also reach us on Twitter, Instagram at TrueCrimeXS or you can give us a call if you know anything about any of the cases that we're talking about at 252-365-5593. You can also reach us at Gmail at TrueCrimeXS at gmail.com and you can check out our website at www.TrueCrimeXS.com. We'll see you next time.